While born in Bethlehem, where he'd remain for approximately the first 18 or so months, then following a short stay in Egypt as a toddler, Jesus would ultimately spend the lion's share of his life growing up in the poor blue-collar town of Nazareth. Nazareth was located about 18 miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. It was predominantly in the middle of nowhere. And aside from being a rough place to grow up, because Nazareth was the hometown of, of Mary and Joseph, life was uniquely difficult, I can imagine, for a Jesus. Yeah, as you would rightly imagine, growing up, he would never escape the cynicism, the gossip, with regards to the origins of his birth. You see, everyone in town, everyone in Nazareth, they knew the story. Mary's pregnancy when she was betrothed to Joseph had created quite a massive scandal. It had rocked this small, tight-knit community. And I'm sure that even those that were closest to Mary and Joseph, their, their, their closest confidants and friends, had all kinds of theories as to who the real baby daddy had been. Sadly, the majority had come to the conclusion that Jesus was a bastard. A reputation, you should note, that would remain with him his whole life. Now with regards to Jesus' life prior to what we kind of call the official start of his public earthly ministry at the age of 30, we only know a few things about his life for sure. First, according to a story recorded in Luke chapter 2, by the time Jesus was 12 years old, he not only possessed a brilliant understanding of the scriptures, but he also, again according to Luke, had a working knowledge or working understanding as to his real identity. By the age of 12, Jesus knew that Joseph was not his real father and that he was the son of God. Aside from this, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we read, So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And I point that out because it does give us a, a little more insight into Jesus' life prior to his earthly ministry. We're told as his custom was, which is interesting. It informs us that Jesus, growing up, was religiously committed. He was devout. As his custom was, he would go to the synagogue every Saturday on the Sabbath. And then we're also told that he stood up to read as his custom was, which says that over time, Jesus, again with his knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, had come to possess some type of standing or, or a position of authority within his local synagogue. As his custom was, he would go and he would stand up and read, which is fascinating. Lastly, while the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, most scholars believe that at some point in Jesus' late teens, that Joseph passes away. And we know this for two reasons. First, following that one scene before mentioned in Luke 2 of Jesus at the age of 12, following that scene, Joseph completely disappears from the narrative. You have mention of Mary and Jesus' ministry, but there's no mention of Joseph after Jesus' age of 12, since it's, I would say, unlikely that Joseph, from what we know of him, would have run out on his family. Death makes the most sense. Secondly, Jesus was known, and don't miss it, he was known when he comes onto the scene as the carpenter from Nazareth. Though Jesus was brilliant, though he was religious and devout, 
as was the custom in his day, with Joseph's passing, it would have been incumbent on the firstborn son to take on the mantle of providing for the family. As such, we can reason that Jesus, a young Jesus, was forced to grow up quickly in order to carry the responsibility of supporting, yes, his mother Mary, but at least six other younger siblings by working as a carpenter. And one of the things you should consider, and I bring these things up for this purpose, when you study the life of Jesus, is how truly little we have documented. Like the reality is the overwhelming majority of Jesus' life was lived in total anonymity. Like even of Jesus' three or so year ministry, of which the Gospels predominantly write, you know we only have bits and pieces of about 52 days? That's it. It's why in John's Gospel he closes admitting that there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Again, I, I mention this because I want to I point out how this makes Jesus so relatable, at, at least from my estimations it does. I mean, without a question, Jesus' life was lived to ultimately die. He came to live, to die, to save us from our sins. Yes, a cross was always Jesus' destiny. And yet, before fulfilling that mission, like it was important for Jesus to have the full human experience. Like Jesus could say, even when he started his ministry, that he knew what life was like on this fallen rock. Jesus spent 90% or so of his life in a difficult town that had a stain of dysfunction, Nazareth. Jesus experienced what life was really like on what we would say the other side of the tracks, to be poor, to be wanting. Jesus knew firsthand what it was like, what it felt like to be gossiped about or to receive glancing stares of judgment or to have the worst assumed about your character, or to be called terrible names. Jesus knew what that was like. Jesus even experienced the sting of death. Jesus understood the pain that comes with death, the loss it causes. He understood the human struggle to cope. Again, forced to grow up earlier than most, Jesus knew what it was like to carry the responsibility of providing for a family to be the man of the home, to prefer the needs of siblings by making sacrifices. Jesus, again, before he was a savior, he was a son, and he was an older brother. Jesus knew what it was like to live in a family and even to be misunderstood by your family. He knew what that was like. As a young man filling the sandals of his hero, Joseph, from the rising of the sun on Sunday to its setting on Friday, Jesus used his hands to make a living. Jesus understood the trials of labor, running a business, dealing with clients. He knew the joy found in a hard day's work. Friend, if Jesus found it important to make it his custom to take a Sabbath day to rest, 
and attend his synagogue. Shouldn't we also find it important to take a day and rest and maybe prioritize coming to church as well? Like regarding his relatability, the author of Hebrew writes in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can, because in all points he was tempted as we, yet without sin. Before we get to our text this morning and look at the launch of Jesus' public ministry, I want to take a moment, you'll just have to bear with me, to, to unpack a question that's rarely discussed. Think about it this, this way. If Jesus knew at the age of 12 who he was and had a working understanding as to what his mission would be, why did he wait until he was 30 years old to leave Nazareth and get started? Why 30? Now, obviously, the short end of the answer is that Jesus lived his life Again, in Nazareth, a simple life, until his heavenly father told him it was time to act, at which point he's obedient. That's the answer. But in John 5, verse 30, Jesus said, he says, I can do nothing of myself. I do not seek my own will, but the will of the father who sent me. So we, we, we get the idea that, yes, Jesus started his ministry because God told him to. But I believe that there were probably, and again, bear with me, maybe two other additional considerations as to why Jesus would leave Nazareth and start his ministry at the age of 30. First, in the law of Moses, specifically Numbers 4, the priests were not allowed to begin their public ministry in the temple until they turned 30. In Jesus' day, that principle of there being kind of a minimum age was also carried over and applied to the rabbis, I should add. And we'll get to this more uh, later in our series through Matthew, but, but a rabbi in Judaism was a religious scholar who had been ordained to be a rabbi by other rabbis to act as a spiritual teacher, a mentor, a leader. So they carried over that principle, applied to the priests, to the rabbis, that you couldn't be a rabbi until you were at least 30. Now, whether or not God intended public service to function within age parameters or not, there is no doubt that the Jewish people in Jesus' day had come to see 30 as the age in which a man had finally attained the spiritual and moral maturity to teach and lead others. Now, we understand it's kind of silly to think that age was a factor at all when it came to Jesus' maturity or his spiritual acumen. But maybe Jesus found it prudent to honor this particular custom by waiting until 30 to start his ministry, as opposed to starting it at a younger age, which would have been very controversial, created a stir, and distracted from the purpose. It's a theory. Secondly, you have to imagine as the man of, of the home, the carpenter from Nazareth, and primary provider for his family in Joseph's absence, that Jesus probably stayed in Nazareth only until he was confident that his four younger brothers were old enough to take care of themselves, as well as take care of his mother and siblings, sisters. Which to me is fascinating. Like, think about that. Think about it. Jesus was content to wait to begin public ministry unto the world until his private ministry to his family was completed. Like, like to me... The idea Jesus Christ 
spent vastly more time on this earth ministering at home in a private setting than he did in a public arena? That's not only inspiring, but it's deeply challenging to the way that we evaluate real ministry. Christian, never underestimate the importance that Jesus places on your private service to your family. 30 years. Well, let's dive into our text, verse 13. Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, and I, and I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him. And when Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This section of Scripture opens, again we'll read it, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Yes, John is there on the shores of the Jordan preaching repentance and baptizing the masses to prepare them for the coming of the king. What was the king doing? Well, he was coming. From Nazareth, Jesus set out to walk the 18 miles east through the valley of the doves into Galilee before he would then head south using the Jordan River Valley to get to Bethabara. The purpose in Jesus making the journey? Well, we're, it's clear. It was to start his earthly ministry by being baptized by John. Imagine the moment when John sees Jesus get into the water and approach. Now, in all likelihood, since Jesus and John were cousins, and roughly the same age, only about six months or so apart, they probably already know each other. We don't know a lot of those details, but that's likely. Additionally, the text indicates that as Jesus is making his way, that John already had a good idea of who Jesus really was, which explains his response to Jesus' request to be baptized. Matthew tells us that, that John tried to prevent him. That word prevent, it's an interesting word in the Greek. In fact, this is the only time in the entire New Testament this word is used. It means that John tried to actively forbid him. Like Jesus, no way, no how, it ain't gonna happen. Now, in light of John's insight into Jesus' identity, from his estimation, as John is trying to kind of wrap his brain around what's going on, like it made no sense. Jesus, why do you even want to get baptized in the first place? Again, look at his objection. He says, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me. It's as though John is pleading. Jesus, like, I don't understand why you're coming to me to be baptized. Instead, let's just roll reverse and you baptize me. That would be way more appropriate, all things considered. Now, before we get into the reason that Jesus wanted John 
to publicly baptize him in the Jordan River. I need to explain one component that didn't play any role at all whatsoever. Now, John's ministry, baptism, key focal point, right? But what was it about? Baptism, in regards to what John was doing, was the outward manifestation of an inward decision of a person to repent of their sin in order to prepare themselves for the ministry of the Messiah. With that in mind, we know this could not possibly have been Jesus' motivation from coming to John to be baptized in the Jordan. Why? Well, first, he had no sin in which to repent or confess. Or two, he had no reason to prepare himself for the Messiah because he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. In fact, it's these two points that seem to be kind of consistent with John's core objections. So, think about it. If Jesus came to be baptized for none of the reasons that John was actually baptizing, why was it so important to Jesus that he be baptized by John in the Jordan River? Now, sadly, most expositions on the baptism of Jesus postulate that the entire exercise here was just a way for Jesus to identify with sinners so that sinners could later identify with him when they realized their need for a savior. It's kind of the traditional, uh, the, the consensus idea, understanding of this passage. But my problem with this idea, this position, is that I don't see how Jesus' baptism identified with anyone other than himself. Or how it even fits within Jesus' own explanation. Let's look at that. John objects. So what does Jesus say? Verse 15. Permit it to be so now. For thus, and here's the explanation, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now notice that these, these words, it to be so, are italicized. Meaning that they're not in the original text. The more accurate translation would be, permit now. <laughs> Jesus was not asking John for permission. He wasn't even asking John to relent. Instead, he's issuing a directive. It's a command. John, we are going to do this. And we're going to do this whether you like it or not. Now why? Well, Jesus adds, he says, for thus it is fitting. That word it means the right thing. It's the right thing for us to fulfill or to render complete all righteousness. Like, don't miss this. Jesus is saying to John that his baptism in the Jordan River was relevant to the fulfillment of of all righteousness. Like clearly, the implications of this scene are much weightier than just Jesus attempting to identify himself with sinners. Well, I'm not, well, I'm, I'm sure that John wasn't, wasn't fully in on what was going on or Jesus' explanation. I, I am confident that it didn't take long for John to like realize, oh, that's why we needed to do this. Look at what follows. We read verse 16 that when Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, like a dove. It wasn't a dove. 
uh, what's being used here is that uh, it's an illustration of probably what the spirit looked like and kind of how the descent was, you know, like a dove, white, there was an aura, and it, and it fluttered. And, and it rests on Jesus. The spirit rests upon Jesus. And suddenly this voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What an amazing statement. Made by God the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And you know that statement, we should unpack it, because it does tell us a lot about Jesus, and really the relationship that he had with his heavenly Father. First, look, these two words, this is my beloved Son. It affirms the reality that Jesus was, is, had always been God's Son. Like, it wasn't as though that at this moment in Jesus' life, he, a great transition happens where he goes from being the son of Mary and Joseph to now uh, being the son of God. That's not what the text says. This is my beloved son. He's been my son from the beginning. Instead, from his birth, as a toddler, from the twos into the threes, into the elementary school ages, middle school, high school, and beyond, Jesus had always been divine. He'd always been God. He had always been sinless. This, this phrase, son of God, it, it means that Jesus was of the same nature as God, which in turn makes him God. This is. But then notice the three words that follow. My beloved son. I love that. My beloved, this is my beloved son. You know, it affirms for us the reality, the fact that God deeply loved his son. Jesus. Now, Jesus is not the actual son. God is not an actual father. But what's interesting is that these two members of the Holy Trinity deliberately chose to illustrate to humanity the nature of their relationship. How? Using something common, something familiar, using the father-son relationship, which I think is, is, is interesting. You know, the father-son relationship is the only relationship within, within the family structure that never changes. There's, it, it, it's immutable. Like moms and sons, okay, that relationship. It's sweet, it's beautiful. Moms, at some point, you will be replaced. Not as mom, but right now you are the most significant woman in your son's life, but there will be a day that, that you'll have to step aside from that particular role and let some other woman be the most significant female in your son's life. And that will be tough. They give you one last dance, you know. And, and if you're talking about the, the, the father-daughter relationship, again, also unique that, that it, doesn't, it doesn't stay that way. Like, I love Mabel with all my heart. I am the most significant man in her life. I'm her daddy, her defender, her protector, provider. But there will be a day that I li they, they literally make you walk down an aisle and give her away. Why? Because your role is changing. Like you, you run into a lot of, like couples run into marital issues when moms don't relinquish their role in the life of their son or with fathers don't do the same for daughters. But the father-son dynamic never changes. Ever. There's nothing that ever necessitates 
a father and a son relationship from changing. So God's like, I need to let humanity know how this works within the Trinity. To do that, I'm going to pick out this human interaction anthropomorphically, and that's going to be an illustration. So you get a glimpse, an insight, my beloved son. Now, regarding this point, I never was able to fully grasp the love that a father has for a son until I became a father. I'll never forget the first night in the hospital with Quincy, our Christmas Eve baby. And what blew me away about the experience, aside from how just tough and awesome my wife is. Hopefully that scores me some points later. But <laughs> What I wasn't prepared for, really. You know, Jessica had a relationship with Quincy going back nine months. You know, from, from the gripping porcelain phase of the relationship to the you're killing my back to I have body parts being moved around. Like, it's an interesting relationship. I, you know, I don't have, a, didn't have one. Like, not a physical, you know, at best I could put my hand on the belly and he'd give me a fist bump, you know, or karate kick. But man, when, 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 when that child comes into the world and you're like following immediately, your heart, I've only known you for like, Five seconds, but I would do anything for you. Like, like that, the love that wells into your heart. I've only known you for a moment, but I would give anything in this world to protect you, to love you. To, like the love that immediately infuses your heart. It's, 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 it's gnarly. I loved my son, and I didn't need a reason. No reason other than he was my son. After the first night, the doctor came in, let us know that they had to take Q to the, the NIC unit for observation. And that was brutal. It was brutal. So, again, keep in mind, it's Christmas morning, and I'm upset with God. And I'm arguing. And <laughs> then the thought hit me. Like, I'm having a hard time entrusting the care of my only begotten son to a group of highly educated, trained professionals. What must it have been like for God, who loves his son, to entrust him with two teenagers who have no clue what they're doing, you know? I, I bring it up to, to really make two points. First, it's important you, you understand that you know, okay? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had a difficult life in Nazareth but it wasn't the evidence that God didn't love him. Oh, he did. And beyond that, it should really humble all of us to consider that the only reason that the Father would send his beloved Son into this world, the only reason is the great love that he has for you and me. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Finally, this is my beloved son. And then this last line, and whom I am well pleased. I, I love this, this line because it affirms that God was already pleased with Jesus before he even began his earthly ministry. 
his public ministry. In fact, the phrase well-pleased can be translated great joy. Like Jesus' life in Nazareth brought God the Father great joy. And don't forget the context. Like when Jesus is uttering these words, Jesus is already 30 years old and he hasn't started his public ministry. Instead, Jesus has spent time in obscurity. At this juncture, Jesus has like a really simple resume. He's been a faithful son. He's been a good big brother. I'm sure he's been a solid friend to those who knew him. You can imagine Jesus was a stellar student, later became an accomplished carpenter. Jesus attended church every week, went to Jerusalem on the feast. Jesus paid his taxes. And I'm sure was involved in his local community. Like when Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized by John, Jesus had not, we have no record, he had not performed a single miracle, nor he had done anything to garner any type of great adoration of the masses or attention. He had done nothing noteworthy. He wasn't an accomplished preacher, filling multiple services in his local synagogue. He wasn't leading an international, global conglomerate. He wasn't hosting crusades or writing bestsellers. He didn't have a book deal. He wasn't on TV. Jesus, this might be a shock, didn't have a podcast. Who doesn't have a podcast? Jesus hadn't even died for the sins of the world. Like to say that Jesus at this moment came out of nowhere, was not on anyone's radar, that's an understatement. Like when, when it came to Jesus' social profile, his network, it was numbered in the tens, not thousands. Jesus was not an influencer. But this is what's so amazing. Even with such a humble, nondescript, simple life of obedience, God the Father testifies before he does anything that the way Jesus had lived his life and Nazareth had brought him incredible joy. Like, friend, never, ever, ever, ever forget that God takes greater joy in the person you are and not necessarily the things you're doing. Though our text is clear, the sudden voice from heaven, introducing Jesus as my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, our text is clear this was audible and it was heard by all those who were present. That said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of the scene do seem to suggest that the heavens being opened and the Spirit of God descending were things that only Jesus saw. That said, the testimony provided by John the Baptist of this event recorded for us in the Gospel of John challenges that notion. In John chapter 1, verses 33 and 34, John testifies. This is his testimony. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this, speaking of Jesus, is the Son of God. Even though Matthew indicates that John believed that Jesus was the Messiah before the baptism, which is why he initially objects, it appears that God had revealed to John at some point, he's like, how will I know who the Messiah is? Like, for sure, for real. Well, you'll see this event. This event happening, the Holy Spirit coming down, resting on 
the individual, that will tell you definitively, conclusively, that's the Messiah. So John has a really good idea it's Jesus, which is why he objects. But when he sees this happen, it's confirmation. Now, without getting into the semantics, my, my point is if John could see the Spirit descend, which he claims to have done, he could have easily then seen the heavens open. I mean, it's where the Spirit starts. And if John could see those things, it stands to reason really everyone else could. Like, the Gospels undoubtedly record the event from Jesus' perspective. But that doesn't necessarily exclude the experiences in the perspective of the bystanders who are standing on the shore. Now, there is no arguing the fact that Jesus' baptism and what followed marked a significant moment in his life. So there is a, this is a personal moment for Jesus. Don't miss that. Not only did Jesus receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit with God the Father confirming His pleasure in the life He'd lived beforehand, which I should point out, this is one of the few instances, you see all three members of the Trinity working in concert, the Father speaking, the Spirit descending, Jesus in the water. But the moment itself, it indicated for Jesus a dramatic change was occurring. There was something happening. A pivot was taking place from his private life to now a public existence. You know, much the same way that the act of water baptism in our lives represents the laying aside of an old life in order to emerge as a brand new person. The baptism of Jesus intended to reflect a similar change was occurring. And going into the water, Jesus was, yes, laying aside a former life. Only to then reemerge, possessing an entirely new uh, focus, mission, set of priorities. In fact, from that moment on, even Jesus' relational roles with his family will have been redefined. Who are my mother and my brothers? A change happened. And yet, it's important we understand that there is a much larger reason that what could have been just a private moment for Jesus, and by extension John, was done in public. It's a public setting. Again, history tells us that, that thousands upon thousands of people were turning out to the Jordan to be baptized by John. So much so that John's popularity, as we noted last Sunday, had drawn the, the ire, the attention of the religious establishment who sent a delegation themselves to investigate. I mean, the crowd there, when Jesus comes, it's massive. It's huge. When Jesus explains how being baptized by John and this in this specific place was, quote, fitting to fulfill all righteousness, he's implying that the entire scene and what would happen, had been specifically orchestrated by God in order to articulate a very important message to everyone who happened to be standing on the banks of the Jordan witnessing the display. Now, to gain a little clarity, don't miss what's really happening. You know, going all the way back, starting with the promise, the original promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 12, a promise then Re, uh, reiterated to the patriarchs, to the heroes of old, spoken of extensively by, by the prophets down through the centuries. For about 1,700 years, 
the Jewish people had held fast to an expectation. What was it? That one day, their Messiah, the promised King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would reveal Himself to Israel. With that in mind, aside from this baptism having a, a personal meaning for Jesus and a, and a practical one for John, when Jesus came out of the water and He received this anointing from the Holy Spirit with a voice of God speaking from heaven, making this public introduction, the moment that for 1,700 years the people had been anticipating, longing and looking for, had finally arrived. You see, the king, who had been concealed for 30 years, was being revealed. The act of, of being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, God was announcing to Israel, what? Your king is here. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's arrived. He's arrived. And yet, well, that would have been astonishing, just the announcement in and of itself, for the implications therein. It's the way in which God revealed Jesus through baptism, I find to be equally radical. It wasn't enough to just announce, Jesus, here, this is my beloved son. But the announcement included, like, I mean, Jesus leaves Nazareth, goes through the galley, goes all the way down to Bethabar to find John, to be baptized in the Jordan. It's all orchestrated. Now, as a general rule of thumb, when it comes to studying the Bible, like I don't find coincidences in Scripture to be accidental. Instead, I, I often see co like big coincidences being intentional and, and, and in a lot of sense, informative. As such, like this story, as I'm reading through it and studying it and digging into it, I, I always take a moment and I, and I ask myself, I take a step back and I say, are there any other significant events that took place in the Jordan River, specifically in the area called Bethabara? Because that might give me some insight. And the answer is, yeah, there is. A big one. You know, in the first few chapters of the book of Joshua, we have the story of the children of Israel finally entering the promised land. After years and years of wandering the wilderness on account of their unbelief. And yet, the final obstacle, standing between God's people and the life that God had promised them, was this Jordan River, which at the time was at flood stage. Like the challenge before the people was daunting. It was seemingly insurmountable. How do you get a nation of people across a raging river that's overflowed its banks? And yet, God had a plan. Under the directives of Joshua, the priests were instructed to carry the ark about a thousand yards upstream. And then they were told to enter the river. And miraculously, the instant the first priest's foot hit the water, the wild torrents of the Jordan were instantly held back. And not only that, imagine this wall of water. But all of the, 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 the ground downstream, it all dried up. Like, God provided safe and easy passage. I have a land. It's a promise. 
there's a river. And that's a challenge. But I will send my ark, and I'll hold back the waters, and you'll go through. I will provide you a way to enter the promised land. In fact, in his conversation with the religious leaders recorded in the previous chapter, I, I noted how John, he says, God's able to, to raise up children from these stones. And, and most scholars believe that when John makes the reference to those stones, he's referring to, well, see, Joshua told the 12 tribes, once they had gotten across, to pile up stones there at Bethabara as a memorial, a testimony of this work, God providing entry into the promised land. Those stones still remaining in Bethabara. Now, when you consider... The Ark of the Covenant. What does the Ark of the Covenant represent? It always represented the physical presence of God on earth. That's what the Ark represented. And and did the promised land represent anything? It was always indicative of heaven. And when you think about that, the promised land, heaven, the Ark, the physical presence of God on earth, an interesting picture emerges. Like practically, the only way God's people were able to enter the land that God had promised was through a work of God's presence giving them safe passage through the Jordan River. You see, it's not an accident that Jesus, the physical presence of God on earth, initiates his public ministry by being baptized in the Jordan River and the same location. That's not an accident. And here's why. While the longing of our hearts is heaven, should be, the promised land. What stands in the way? The mighty Jordan, sin, the penalty of death it demands. And the difficult truth is that none of us can cross over those stormy waters. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand right? And cast the wistful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land, right? I'm bound to the promised land. But there's an obstacle. The Jordan. And I can't cross it. You can't cross it. You can't get to the other side on your own. The divide is insurmountable. And yet we know that Jesus came to accomplish The same miracle the story in Joshua illustrated. Just like the ark of old. What did Jesus do? He entered into stormy waters. The stormy waters of sin and death. The Jordan. And why? To provide us passage to the other side. Practically, consider how our safe passage, how do we get through it? How do we get through to the other side? How does our safe passage come to fruition, practically? First, Jesus lived a sinless life in order to die a sinner's death. At which point, what happened? He was buried under death, only to rise victoriously to resurrection life three days later. And you and I are saved by identifying with that work. Now, how, you want to take a guess? Does the Bible describe Jesus dying and rising to new life? Let me read you a few quick passages. Paul says in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know that as many as were baptized 
into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death. And that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we should also walk in newness of life. Baptism. Colossians 2.12, Paul says of Christians that we were buried with Jesus in baptism and which then you were raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 4.5, Paul affirms that there is only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Again, why was it so important John baptized Jesus to start his ministry in the Jordan River at Bethabara? Well, and his providential wisdom. Right from the inception of his public ministry, God wanted to introduce his beloved son to the people. But he also wanted to illustrate for the people the mission of the king. You see, Jesus had not only come to provide safe passage through the Jordan, sin and death, so that we might enter a land of promise, but his baptism illustrated for us. Jesus baptized in the Jordan and illustrated how our passage would happen. We would be baptized into Jesus' death so that we could rise and experience His resurrection. The baptism of Jesus truly signified the fulfillment of all righteousness. Which, think about it. Which is why immediately following Jesus' baptism, what two things immediately happen? The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And God declares his good pleasure. Again, this is the gospel. And one act, one scene, and one moment. For the instant you identify yourself with Jesus' death, you're raised to resurrection life for what to happen? like Jesus, to be filled with the Spirit of God and for God to declare of you, this is my beloved son or daughter and who I am well pleased. So Father, Lord, we thank you for this picture, what the story illustrates for us.